can there be a place within you that's a sanctuary that no matter what's going on, you can go back there. And maybe there's a sentence like inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend, or back to the breath or your own mantra or something from your religion or spirituality that helps bring you to that home place because there's so much happening. It's easy to be everywhere, but it's nice to have some place to go home. Welcome to A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Huang. This podcast is a place of exploration to learn and grow from each other on the journey to becoming our best selves. Let's get to today's show. Our guest today is Dr. Rachel Goldsmith Turow. Rachel is a mindfulness and compassion teacher, a clinical psychologist, a research scientist specializing in self criticism and an adjunct professor at Seattle University and Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She is also an author with a new book out titled The Self-Talk Workout, Six Science-Backed Strategies to Dissolve Self-Criticism and Transform the Voice in Your Head. She is based in Seattle, Washington. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited for our conversation. I have been reading your book and it's just been so delightful and so interesting, just like kind of going into this idea of what is self-talk and how, you know, how do we really kind of change the dialogue within our own minds? So Rachel, I'd love to get started by talking about how do you really define self-talk? Well, I consider self-talk to really be how you relate to yourself in your own mind. And for a lot of us, that does involve words, the words that you might say to yourself like, oh, good job, or oh, I should really get that done. But sometimes it's not really verbal. Sometimes it's more of a felt sense of um, encouragement or disapproval or things we don't like about ourselves, feeling just kind of blah or ugh. So. It might be something that you really notice. Okay, this is how I talk to myself and I really want to try to be nicer. Or it might be something that you're still noticing, still in the process of observing, okay, how am I actually treating myself in my mind? So either verbal or nonverbal, just that quality and the general habits of, because it's usually like, we unless we're really making an effort to relate to ourselves in a different way, we sort of keep going perpetuating how we just normally do it without thinking. Hmm. I love what you said about this perpetuating. So usually I feel like our self-talk tends to be something that is almost like on repeat, like we're repeating a lot of those things. Um, Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's a very powerful habit. And I'm really intrigued by some of the research showing that the habitual nature of it actually matters as much as what we say. And when we think, okay, I've had a mind for many years or decades now, then um, it just kind of keeps going the way you're used to relating to yourself to the extent that I have a lot of um, students and some patients say, I've just always been a very self-critical person. People often consider this, this is just part of who I am. This is how I am. Like, you know, I have brown eyes or I have curly hair. They think that this is just a fact about them rather than a habit that actually did start, has been influenced by outside forces and is actually changeable. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. So where does all this come from? Like, where is it that we stem all these kind of repeating things in our minds? Well, I think that there are several factors that research shows have an influence. So we do observe how other people treat themselves. So if you grow up, you know, hearing somebody put themselves down a lot, you might think that that's normal. If you hear your friends do it, that kind of can feel like the norm or how you should do it, even not consciously. You just kind of absorb it and repeat it. A lot of elements in different cultures are also very competitive. So 
as we're growing up, it's really common to know, okay, who's smarter than me, who's more beautiful, who's, um, you know, who do I, would I rather be than me? Who's better at sports? Who's better at music? And these ideas about our rank and status are very powerful. And so I think that it leads to us constantly evaluating ourselves. And that might have some advantage if, okay, well, we want to succeed. Maybe you want to, um, you know, get into college or something. So it's not all negative that you kind of know that you want to be doing well, but it can be really destructive when your whole kind of manner of being with yourself is just, am I good enough? Am I okay? Am I doing well enough? That constant evaluation. There's also this facet of the human mind that is called the negativity bias. And it's kind of a bummer, but it doesn't mean anything bad about you. But basically, our brains are more attuned to negative information. And that's really good for survival, right? Because you want to remember, okay, this plant is poisonous. Okay, I can't go over there. I can't trust this person. So you could see why the brain would be really drawn to like, okay, information that's relevant to survival, we're going to like prioritize that. And other information that's sort of neutral or no big deal or pleasant, that's just not quite as important. So if you're noticing the negative more, it doesn't mean that like you're a bad person or a negative person. That's just part of how our brains have evolved to survive, but it's not just not very pleasant. So if you want to go against that negativity bias, it can take a little bit of effort to say, okay, my brain is naturally prioritizing paying attention to the bad stuff. So I am going to counter with making sure that I pay extra attention to stuff that is going well and to, you know, stuff that is neutral or things I'm curious about or interested in, because otherwise the brain on its own will just be like, watch out, this is bad, you're bad, you know, there's a threat over here. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's actually one of the most interesting, like I noted it um, when I was reading your book, because I was just like, oh, we're all like, it made me ask this question of like, are we all pre-programmed to be negative? Do you feel like that's the case based on that bias? Well, that's just one feature. But then the influences of like the competitive culture come in. And also if people experience things like bullying or um, abuse. Uh, racism, homophobia, there's evidence that all of these kind of negative um, parts of our culture also can really sink in and people feel bad about themselves, even if they know it's totally wrong, the the bad treatment can still get under your skin. So I, I think we can all relate to that too, that like the mean things that somebody in seventh grade said, like, even though we know logically, like, okay, that was years ago, it still kind of hurts a little bit. Right, right. That's that kind of like repetition we're talking about, right? Where it's like something yeah. happened at one point in time, but we're still kind of repeating that that bias against ourselves in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And it does seem to be that the evidence shows that self-criticism or kind of beating yourself up forms the link between the mistreatment that we experience and then adulthood depression or anxiety. So I think that there's this idea out there that self-criticism is kind of common, which it is, but also that it's um, uh, motivating or even helpful. But the research shows it's not helpful. And actually, it's a pretty serious mental health risk. So self-criticism mm -hmm. is sometimes I think of it as the smoking of mental health because it's related to everything. So self-criticism is related to higher levels of depression, anxiety stress, eating disorders, substance use, and self-harm. So it's actually a pretty good risk factor, a pretty serious risk factor for mental health challenges. Yeah, that's so interesting because I actually was having this conversation with a friend recently where I was saying how treating myself better and like having good like self-care and self-love for myself has been, you know, is motivating to me. And he was like, well, if I if I treat myself nicely, then I won't do anything. You know, I won't get anything done. Like I need to kind of have this negativity around myself to motivate myself. And, and I, you know, and I think there's a lot of us that, that have that kind of notion, right. Where it's like, if I don't, you know, 
kind of negatively look at what I'm doing, then I won't do it. And, and I, I disagree with that, you know, obviously, and, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, you kind of touched a little bit about that, but what are your thoughts around that notion and how do we change our, our minds around that or shift away from that idea? It's such a common belief. It really is. And, you know, sometimes I think about, um, I remember the show called the biggest loser, and there was a really mean coach on it that really was like drill sergeant type of motivation, mm-hmm. right? Just shouting at the participants about, you know, how bad they were and how much better they needed to be. And I think that inner drill sergeant is really common that, okay, the more I shout at myself, the, the better I'll perform. Well, you know, I'm a big research nerd, so I always like to look at the data. And I mean, the data show the opposite, that if you're um, self-compassionate, you actually are more productive. And one of the interesting studies that I heard about had to do with applying for jobs. And you know, it's it can be a really frustrating process. You're writing cover letters, you're spending a lot of time, like hours on an application, and you don't know if it's going to go anywhere. Maybe you feel down about not having a job or having to look for a new one. And you can kind of see in that situation, if you start thinking, oh, I'll never get a job. This cover letter is terrible. <laughs> like less likely to finish it. And indeed the results showed that people who are kinder towards themselves found a job more quickly. So I would say, even though the research shows that self-compassion is more motivating than self-criticism, why not try it out and experiment with yourself? There's this exercise I have called um, spot the success where you list 10 things, actions that you've taken today that have contributed positively to your life, to somebody else's life, or to the world. And it's the type of thing that when I've told my students about it, they found it sort of silly at first, because I say like, no item is too small. Like, did you get out of bed? Did you get dressed? Did you text a friend? And what students write is that even though they found it silly initially, that practicing it, you know, over time, over a few weeks of doing that, of writing down 10 things that you've accomplished, not in an evaluative way, but like in a way of appreciation, that they felt more motivated. They felt more energized. Oh, look what I've done. Now I can do more instead of feeling depleted. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And yeah, it's, it's interesting how we, it's what we believe versus what is reality. And I, I appreciate that the science is backing up the fact that self-compassion is really helping you and actually able to motivate you further than the criticism is. So, so that's, it's, it's nice to hear that confirmed, I think is how I feel about it. <laughs> okay. So I'd love to, to, um, switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about what has your experience been? Because oftentimes we get into these things or we, you know, work into something because it's something that we've struggled with ourselves. Right. So What has your journey really been like around self-talk? Well, when I was growing up, I felt very self-critical. I thought that there were a lot of pretty bad or um, unremarkable things about me. I got picked last for sports. I wore glasses in the 80s before they were cool. So I was like horribly unattractive and a nerd. And I felt pretty, you know, unlovable and just pretty bad about myself. And I also even felt bad about myself for feeling bad about myself. So I would have liked to have stopped, but I didn't really know how. And I remember hearing that song by Whitney Houston, The Greatest Love of All, which is all about self-love. And it was a beautiful song, but it made it seem like it was a really simple choice. Like, oh, just decide to love yourself. And some people really do benefit from that kind of insight or, you know, flash of inspiration. But what I found for me was that having the desire to feel good about myself, it wasn't enough. I couldn't make the change with just wanting to feel better. And I felt depressed. I felt like I wasn't, you know, good enough. I really loved music, but I wasn't the most talented. I got into college, but it wasn't an Ivy League. So I I always just sort of felt sort of less than. So I became really curious when I studied psychology to learn more about, well, what are the methods of changing how you feel about yourself inside that 
actually work? And I'd really like to know them specifically because this idea of um, positive self-talk, I think that phrase is pretty vague. Like, oh yeah, you should do positive self-talk. Well, what does that mean? How often do I do it? What does it sound like? And so I really appreciated that uh, I found some strategies that I didn't invent these strategies like loving kindness meditation that have been around for thousands of years, but now have really strong research evidence with thousands of participants who practice specific self-talk techniques for usually a period of like three to eight weeks is a common research time frame to show really substantial benefits. And when I practice these exercises myself, I also didn't necessarily feel a shift the first day I practiced them, but it was really helpful for me to practice them in groups. So I would go to um, mindfulness meetings or self-compassion meetings uh, that led by meditation teachers who studied these type types of techniques. So it really helped me feeling like I wasn't the only person that I alone, I was like, this wasn't my own personal challenge that made me weird, but that nourishing how you treat yourself and shifting it was this human uh, goal that many people are working on. And I found the techniques really effective because I practiced them over and over again. And I began to feel like I had sort of home base within my body of how I treated myself and how I practiced so that if I started criticizing myself with sort of, you know, my greatest hits of self-criticism, like, oh, maybe I should get more done. Maybe I should be more organized that at least I could balance it with coming back to my phrases, my loving kindness phrases that I had sort of established this foundation could keep building on. Hmm. So was meditation kind of the basis of you kind of shifting your self-talk, would you say? I think meditation played a really big role in my life. Absolutely. And it, within meditation, there's different kinds of meditation. So I started off with sort of a seated breath meditation. And in that kind of technique, the idea is to pay attention to your breath and when it wanders to bring it back as fast as possible with as little judgment as possible which sounds sort of easy, but it's super hard. It was really, really frustrating for the first few weeks. The first time I tried it, I hated it. I didn't try it again for years. And uh, I think I tried it some more in yoga classes because yoga classes sometimes have a little bit of meditation or self-compassion. And then finally, I gave it a really good try for every day for several months. And that's when things really started to shift for me because it gave me the opportunity to notice my habits of thinking and try something new in the moment, not just have the intention, but to actually kind of, you know, you're in the lab of your mind trying out something new. And um, so that mindfulness meditation is really neat because whatever your thoughts are, it can give you the opportunity to be present within yourself and to treat yourself in a different way. And then as a complement to mindfulness meditation, um, the compassion-based mindfulness practices have played a really big role in my life. Now, both of these kinds of techniques, mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, they usually take a few weeks to work. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they want relief more uh, quickly, which makes a lot of sense, or it just doesn't feel like the right time to meditate, or it feels too hard. And giving yourself kindness with that difficulty, I think is actually part of the process. It's like a feature, not a bug that, yeah, meditation is hard. Can you be gentle and tolerate it to get the benefit or just feel so hard that you're going to be so mad at yourself for being distracted? But all this to say that the science shows that these are some of the absolute best ways to change your self-talk for the better. Mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. They both involve cultivating kind feelings and having less self-judgment, less self-criticism. So though these are kind of like our gold techniques or our main courses, but if you're just getting started with self-talk, there are shorter, easier exercises to do that also have some um, evidence indicating that they can be effective as well. 
Yeah, I was. it was interesting when you were talking about meditation um, in the book, because you mentioned that that's, you know, it's not for everyone, which I, I totally agree. Like, not everyone is ready to, like, really sit down and try and do all these practices, because as you mentioned, they're really hard, especially at the beginning, which can be kind of a blocker for some people. So it's, I appreciate that you included some, like, of these lesser things, but I am curious because because I will say for me myself, like my meditation has, I think, probably been one of the biggest things for myself in terms of my own self-talk, because I noticed, I remember I, I started doing meditation a few years ago, and it's like the days that I would miss my meditation, I would actually notice how hard I was on myself. Like I would visibly mm-hmm. notice that I was like, wow, I've been really hard on myself today. And it's because I didn't meditate. So it's, it's interesting because I, yes, I agree. It is kind of like the gold standard where it's like, but it was, it's almost like a, yeah, like a really big shifter for me. Like if I don't meditate, I'm like, I suddenly am super self-critical versus the days I do, which is most days, thankfully. (laughs) That's so interesting to notice that. And I think so many of us, we want to be good meditators if we try it. So actually, I think of self-criticism as one of the biggest obstacles to beginning med- meditation. People get so mad at themselves when their mind goes away. So I really try to remind students that that's actually the normal work of meditation. It doesn't mean that you're bad or there's anything wrong, wrong with you. Of course, your mind is going to go away. And if it happens a hundred times, that's a hundred opportunities to bring it back gently when without judgment. And then bringing it back without judgment will then benefit you like for you, Jessica, outside of the practice, because you've already had this intentional time of exercising your non-judgment kindness muscles. So they're already strong for the rest of your day. So there are other ways to do that, of course, but um, I love hearing about the shifts that people have when they decide that they're going to implement a specific technique and give it a really good try for a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like it's one of those things that that's like, if you really commit to it, like it really can make such a difference. Like I was encouraging someone even to meditate for a minute, you know, like just take that time and just be able to sit with yourself even for a minute and see how how that helps you, you know, kind of encourage yourself that you're you're doing some showing up for yourself, you know, so yeah. So actually, and I, it's funny, I feel like I'm going backwards where we should start with the small things and work to the harder things, but we're going to go backwards. (laughs) But, um, you know, one of the things that you were talking about is kind of mind meditation versus doing mindfulness. And I'd love to talk more about this because actually mindfulness, I find a lot harder because mindfulness is something that you're trying to do throughout your day. Versus meditation where I'm like, I sit down, I do it at the beginning of my day, you know, and I kind of benefit from it the rest of my day. But can you talk a little bit about how you see the difference and how do we keep, keep going with mindfulness? Sure. Well, meditation often refers to this specific time that we've set aside that we're going to practice noticing our minds on purpose. And that's usually structured. You decide, okay, I'm going to have sitting meditation or walking meditation. This is the technique that I'm going to use, or I'll practice my loving kindness meditation phrases. Whereas mindfulness is this um, also includes informal practice, informal meaning you didn't decide that you're going to do this specific technique. And that can even mean trying to be more mindful in your day, right? People talk about mindful eating. Are you paying attention to the taste of your food or mindful walking and being mindful in our conversations and relationships? And it is, I think that sometimes uh, you hear meditation teachers talking about how they tried to be mindful the whole day, right? That's the idea that you keep practicing so that you are present in this moment and alive and ready to connect and live instead of, I don't know, what am I doing when I ruminate, just worrying about the next thing, being on autopilot. I think it is hard. And I think maybe like 
constant mindfulness is a hard, uh, like maybe too perfectionistic to like, be like okay, I'm going to go from being kind of like regular to being like totally mindful all the time. Yeah. But I think it can benefit even just a few minutes. Like um, when I take the trash out or the compost, I really try to be there for those moments because I have fresh air, I'm outside. And I also like to give myself a little encouragement, like, good job, you took the trash out. <laughs> you know, that, That's another thing you did. Well done. So I think that you have these small opportunities that even if it's not like a smooth flow of mindfulness all day, are there specific moments like, you know, taking a shower or putting on your clothes where you can try to actually tune in to present moment sensations. Hmm. Do you feel like in order to do that, are you kind of just because I feel like I need like some sort of reminder, right. Of some, some kind of trigger to say, like, let me think of be mindful in this moment. You know, like, I like what you were saying around the idea of like, you're doing it when you're eating or you're doing it for a certain thing, but how do you kind of incorporate that even more as you're going through your day? Do you feel like it is just picking certain times or, or what would you recommend there? There are a few ways to do it and you can pick certain times or certain actions. I do have a reminder on my phone that Mm. goes off at 1230 and it says, inhale my friend, exhale my friend, which is a one breath mindfulness exercise that I like a lot. It's also a self-talk exercise because you're calling yourself my friend and not my enemy or like bad person who hasn't accomplished enough today. (laughs) So So that's just a single breath and it's a phone reminder and alert. It just says, inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend. And I also do it when I wake up. It's just my habit. So just like we have all these other habits, right, of, you know, putting one leg in your pants first, like you can think about building up little self-talk habits or little mindfulness habits that you can sprinkle in your day. It doesn't have to be super long. Even a breath is, can make a difference. Yeah, I love inhale my friend, exhale my friend, by the way. I think it's great. And it's so like if we're now going to like the simple things, right? The simple things you can add to your day. I think that one's great. I'm glad my students have enjoyed it because it's, yeah, it doesn't demand a lot and you can do it anywhere. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that that actually came from a yoga class. So was it like in a pose that you were told to, to say that to yourself or how did that come about? You know, it was a long time ago, so I don't actually remember if it was in a pose. This was maybe 15 years ago, but I do remember that nobody else showed up that day. So I was just just alone with a teacher and she really could have canceled, you know, that, but she was so generous in offering me that class. And I don't think it was connected to a specific pose. I think she just invited it as a way of breathing, but it was really wild to me because just like in yoga, you know, people talk sometimes about like how you are on the mat is how you are off the mat. And yes. so it's really, really tempting when you're trying to do certain yoga poses to be like, am I doing this well enough? Is this good enough? Or like noticing the other people on the mats if they're there. So I love the idea of just tuning into inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend is actually, this is all in service of our own health and friendliness. Even if we forget and sort of you know, gravitate towards our, you know, conditioned comparison and evaluation to try to return to inhale, my friend, exhale, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. So yeah, which, which reminds me, like, I feel like the thing about a lot of this is around the idea of habits, right? Because we're either habitually saying these negative things to ourselves or, and in this case, we're saying, how do we habitually say positive things to ourselves, right? So do you feel like in terms of a lot of these things that you're talking about, what do you feel like is the best way to kind of incorporate um, some of the habits or the strategies that you're talking about? Is it really, you know, setting time aside? Do you think it's, it's more like throughout the day or what is the best way to kind of bring those in? I don't know that there's a best way. And I like (laughs) the idea of kind of personalizing a self-talk workout, depending on what's right for you. But I think more choosing consciously, okay, I'm going to take strategy number one and strategy number four, and I'm going to try those out. 
of course, if, if it is something like mindfulness meditation, it is really nice to plan when you're going to do it. It's just so easy to have the day slip away and to have it not happen. That happens to me many more days than I'd like, but having it on the calendar makes it way better. I think too, it's kind of people's amount of bandwidth in their lives and readiness for trying something new. And also uh, wanting to shake up those assumptions, I think is really huge too, right? The idea that self-criticism is motivating. Another one that I have is that you need motivation first before changing something. Mm -hmm. So I like to promote the idea that you can leapfrog over that lack of motivation and think about just getting the actions done. Even if you don't really feel like it, Sometimes people say with these self-talk exercises, actually, that at first they feel weird or like um, fake or not like them. Uh, the mindfulness teacher, Sharon Salzberg, is one of my favorite teachers. She teaches loving kindness. And she said the whole first month that she taught it, her I mean, that she practiced it when she was first learning it, her brain was saying, well, this is stupid <laughs> for the whole month. And she did it anyway. And then at the end of the month, she, you know, dropped this planter and the dirt and leaves went everywhere. And then she said, um, you are such a klutz, but I love you. Uh -huh. And so she reflects that, well, it seemed like nothing was happening, but something was happening. And sometimes my students say the same thing. They say that it's kind of a fake it till you make it thing. So I know we want things to work instantly. But when you're talking about these very powerful mental habits, you really might need to give it a few weeks as your own experiment and try not to judge how much it's working until, you know, you've given it a good try. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's interesting because your class that you teach is a four-week class, correct? Yeah, it's eight sessions or modules, but over four weeks. Okay. So do you feel like people are already kind of making a shift in that amount of time or because obviously it's an ongoing journey, but what has that been like for your students? Oh, I love it. A lot of people report meaningful shifts. For some reason, I think it's just different when it's a graded class and I don't grade people like based on how much progress they make or something, but um if they just describe what's going on in their minds, they get full points, even if they say, you know, this is really frustrating or I forgot to practice, but I still think having it as an assignment, there's a different level of accountability. So I think that my students practice more than if I suggest to a therapy patient, Hey, would you want to try out this new perspective? They might say, eh, I don't know, or like maybe, or I tried it once. I didn't like it. My students are required <laughs> to practice and they do. And I think it's really that regular practice. So for like the spot, the success exercise where they write out 10 things that they did well today, or, you know, that, that they accomplished, not even evaluating that contributed positively. Um, they have to turn those in. They actually have to do those and turn them in. So I know that they've done them. And then I, I really do hear some great shifts about how people are noticing how they're treating themselves and changing how they're treating themselves within four weeks. And it is so satisfying and lovely to hear those accounts. I mean, nobody writes, now my life is perfect. I'm done. You know, no more inner work for me. <laughs> but um, it seems like it gives them um, a nice repertoire of skills. And then at the end, I have them choose, well, going forward, which one or two skills would you want to keep practicing? And they usually choose one or two. Yeah, no, that I think that's great. I mean, it's interesting, though, because it is one of those things where it's like, how do we motivate ourselves when we don't have a graded class to really incorporate these things then? It's true. And I mean, just like I liked practicing in community, there are um, different training programs that are really interesting out there, like um, Mindful Self-Compassion is an eight-week course. Mindfulness-based stress reduction is an eight-week course. There's another one called Compassion Cultivation Training. So if you do want a, a, a class that meets specific times, those resources are available. There's also different, you know, mindfulness groups and meditation sits with different meditation communities. I think being with other people can be powerful just so you feel a little bit more like connected and have a community, but some people really want to do this work on their own too. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like as you were kind of doing this research, were you kind of incorporating each one into your own like practices or how has that been? 
I, I absolutely was as I, I wrote the outline of the book. And then when I was writing, I went chapter by chapter and it was such a challenging time because when the actual writing was happening, it was during the pandemic. I had my three kids at home. The, some of the writing was bad, which is like, I know it's a book about self-criticism, <laughs> <laughs> but my editor was a rock star, really kind and encouraging. And I, you know, was able to do revisions, but it was really helpful during that really just difficult time. I know for a lot of people also just had different kinds of hardships and loneliness during that time to have a specific practice, like spot the success or inhale my friend, exhale my friend or loving kindness meditation. It really made a difference to sort of ground me again. And I found myself using it more whenever I was writing that chapter. So loving kindness meditation, I remember using it when I was stuck in traffic because it's unpleasant, right? But when you're in traffic, one way that I found just trying it out was, well, what if I send kind wishes to the other drivers? Just look at the people in the cars and say, I hope your day goes really well. I hope you have a really peaceful week ahead. It's just really hard to be stressed when like you go into that mental space and the more you practice it, then the easier it is to shift over there. That is beautiful. I love that. I love that so much. Just like the ability to do it while you're stuck in traffic. Like what a novel idea. I mean, of course, thank you. There's other times I'll forget, but <laughs> it's 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 just nice that, you know, these are like muscles, right? So the more you practice them, mm-hmm. the more um, quickly and uh, easily you can engage them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I so agree with that because it's like, you practice, you do the practice so that it it flows into the other times when you're not thinking about it, right? Absolutely. I think some of my students in my meditation class, they think they're supposed to get good at meditating, which everybody wants to be good at things. I understand that. But the point is to be happy in your life, right? This is just a tool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to talk a little bit about um, like the judge of ourselves, you know, like, or the judge in our life, right? The way that we judge ourselves and the way that we judge others. And so that's a a big, you know, we're talking about self-criticism, but how do you feel like, do you feel like that shift is just done through all these little practices or how do you feel like we really help ourselves judge ourselves a little less? Wow. Well, I think that it's so tempting to judge ourselves when we're used to it. It's just easier to do what you're used to. And when I think about sort of a person's life and also how the brain develops, I remember this one uh, area of adolescent neuroscience where uh, teenagers actually are judging each other more. And the part of their brain that's involved in social evaluation and thinking about each other's thoughts is actually coming online as well, starting to be more active. Mm. And so there's actually scientific reason why teenagers are judgy. Like it has to deal with like the developing brain and social cognition. And I remember being in high school and like really worrying about what I was going to wear. Like, oh, am I going to wear this? But I wore that last week and like really feeling like other people would care. (laughs) And then I would actually hear other people talking about other girls' clothes. So I didn't feel insane. I felt like, no, actually, this is like normal. Like people are being judged and evaluated by what they wear. And then, of course, it's just different, right? I'm as going on with your life thinking, for instance, okay, my resume and my work history has to look a certain way to prospective employers because they're going to think this if I've accomplished that. And if I haven't done that, they're going to think this. So again, I think it's that um, survival. It can be evolutionarily advantageous, right? To think, how are other people going to see me? And then, I mean, the joy too about like now being in my 40s is like, nobody cares what I wear. (laughs) Like they (laughs) negative care, zero care. (laughs) So... I mean, as long as my clothes are like not smelly, I really don't think anybody, yeah. Um, So that's kind of a relief, but how can we support ourselves and each other in all of these phases, phases of life, or even support teenagers if you're around them? Mm -hmm. And the best evidence that we have is that by nourishing these capacities of kindness and non-judgment, we just have the best shot 
at balancing it out. And the, the beautiful thing too, is I think that less of that constant judgment opens up your energy for other things. Mm. You can actually do some other things that are important to you besides worrying about whether you're good enough and what other people are going to think about you. Would you say that this is that the practice is really in self-compassion to kind of counteract judgment or what what do you feel like is is the best way to kind of move away from that judgment? Well, I love that there are multiple ways and that's where it really comes in with like okay, well what's right for you? Um again being sort of like in the research nerd place, one thing that really fascinates me is that both loving kindness meditation. So for instance, saying to yourself, um, kind phrases like, may I be safe? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live with ease? The evidence shows that that kind of meditation practice lowers self-criticism and builds self-compassion. Fantastic. But mindfulness meditation, paying attention to the breath, it goes away. You notice that it's gone away. And instead of thinking, I'm such an idiot, or why can't I, you know, maintain my focus? Instead of that, you say, oh, my breath went away. I'll bring it back. Practicing that a thousand times and then another thousand, or, you know, a lot of times also lowers self-criticism and um, promotes self-compassion. So there actually isn't a best way. You can pick either of those ways will strongly um, reduce self-criticism and build self-compassion. So I think it's so nice that you don't have to, you know, you could pick one and they both have really strong results. And then there are some other, other ways of doing it too, that don't have quite as strong research behind them, but have some evidence indicating that they're helpful. So for example, um, behavioral activation, that's a term that means, um, doing active things that are aligned with your goals and values, even if you don't feel like it, that also promotes when mental health and well-being and can lower self-criticism. And then this skill of cognitive reappraisal or spot the success, seeing the same thing, but in a different way, that can also lower self-criticism. So you have these different techniques that can get you to the same place. Hmm. From what you're saying, it sounds a lot like yeah, it really is like building that muscle, right? Like we think of our physical muscles, but it's like, these are our mental muscles. So building that mental muscle of saying like, how do I treat myself with more kindness? How do I, you know, not have as much of a judgmental view on like what's happening and, and being able to just like be more objective, right? Like, um, I know you mentioned like being the witness in the book, which is something that, I learn a lot in, through yoga is this idea of just like witnessing something versus kind of seeing it as like part of you or part of whatever is going on. Yeah, that's such valuable practice. It's yeah. so tempting to feel that over identification, like I am my depression or I am mm -hmm. my anxiety. And I think unfortunately, that's sort of the very normal thing. And some of those feelings are really sneaky. And I think they kind of show up that way. Like this is really you and you're never going to get better. And the more you can actually notice that, like, oh, that's an interesting thought that is in present right now, rather than like, this is who I am. Mm. Uh, that can be really valuable practice. And sometimes it's easier to begin with the body. So um, from sort of yoga or other mindfulness traditions, there's a, the idea of a body scan where you tune into different parts of your body from head to toe. And one of the things that I like about it is that you're consciously directing and distributing your attention. And sometimes it's less charged to like notice, oh, there's a little bit of tension in my neck right now than to notice like, oh, I'm really jealous and angry. Like that might mean something about me. Whereas like the neck tension is kind of like, so um, it can be a good, it's like kind of like, you know, the 10 pound weights before you pick up the 20 pound weights again with the exercise idea. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One other thing I want to touch upon is this idea of doing enough, because you had sent me this article that was focused on that. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about that. How do you feel about this idea? Because we're so many people are constantly struggling with feeling like they've done enough or like feeling like, They've really, you know, like the ever ending to-do list that will never get checked off. So what are your thoughts around that? And how do we kind of change our mindset around it? 
Such a good question, Jessica. And first, I just want to like acknowledge that it's so hard. There honestly is so much to do yeah. besides our work, our jobs that we want to be good at. Um, just the basic tasks of being human. I mean, we need to get food. We need to clean our clothes. We need to have a clean living space. I don't know. And take care of your body. Things are happening all the time, maintaining friendships. There are problems in the world that need action and advocacy. So there actually is an impossible amount of stuff to do. So I think it's kind of helpful to know that, okay, I'm not going to be able to accomplish a hundred percent of what I would like to today. And that's, there's a little bit of agony there because it, it doesn't feel wonderful. So maybe I can give myself a little bit of self-compassion about that. Like, okay, that's there. But given that that's the situation, how can I, how can I go through my day not feeling defeated and not beating myself up for not doing enough? And I think that there are a few different ways. I like that spot, the success exercise to balance out like, okay, here's all the stuff I haven't done, which is like enormous and to make pay a little bit more attention over here to like, but I did do these things. That's not meaningless. Those are still important. And I'm glad that I did those. And I connected with that friend or I made breakfast for my family that that does matter. And then um, I also like the idea of manageable tasks. Because I mean, I would really, really like to organize my whole house and get rid of a bunch of stuff. I I've been working the past few years and I just haven't been able to clear stuff out or I haven't chosen to do it. And there's more stuff that, that I need to kind of go through and sort through. If I think of the whole thing, it's just totally overwhelming. Even one room or the whole garage, it just feels overwhelming. So manageable tasks are great because then you're like, I organized this drawer instead of, oh, I didn't get the whole kitchen organized. So smaller tasks or chunking can really be your friend. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Cause yeah, I feel like we often get so overwhelmed, right. By the things that are going on in our lives. And it's true. It's like, how do we manage the like 20 things? You know, I, I think of, um, you know, us juggling all these different tasks and it's, it's it it just becomes so much. So I love this idea of like spotting the success, making sure you're you're motivating yourself by saying like I am doing things, I am accomplishing something, and then being able to say like how do I make this smaller so I am you know I am getting things done and I'm not saying because I think when you look at the big thing, you end up not starting at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then I think there's this productivity the productivity culture, right? Like what is enough? Who's the judge? Like, who am yes. I afraid is going to be like, Rachel, uh-uh. Like, no, that's not enough work. Your house isn't good enough. Like who's going to do this? Nobody's going to do this, but I have this imagination that there's this judgment coming. And I think that's really powerful. And I think that the culture of productivity is enormous uh, really there's, we could just keep working and yeah, not eat and not rest and not sleep and stay up all night, but then we'd feel awful <laughs> the next day. So I think it's really radical to acknowledge the productivity culture. And then to the extent that we're able to financially and otherwise to actually think of, well, how much do I want that to be my mentality and how much of my behavior and time do I want to put into you know, my, my work. And, and I, I'd like that. I'd like to put the effort into my work in a place that's coming from my own interest and motivation and um, excitement and not so much like I have to do more. Mm. I need to do more. So along those lines, then how, what is kind of the science, science backed way of really creating motivation for yourself? It's really that behavioral activation speech. Um, sorry, behavioral activation idea of prioritizing action. So mm -hmm. people want to be motivated. I think of my college students, for instance, like before you want write the paper, you want to like really feel like you're in a paper writing mood, <laughs> like sit down and write it. And you may or may not feel like it, but it's important actually to work when you're not feeling motivated because the evidence shows that even though we think motivation comes before action, oh, you need motivation to do the action. It's actually the opposite. Mm. So you kind of have to just do it. 
or at least I shouldn't say you have to, but if you want to feel motivated, think about doing the action first. So for instance, a lot of people struggle to exercise, even if they really want to. So I like to just say, okay, foot out the door. So don't focus on feeling motivated. Like you have a foot and the goal is to get your foot out, even if it's for one minute. And then you get a wrap up on my head. Oh, I don't really have enough time or like, oh, you know, my leg doesn't feel quite right. It's like, no, just foot needs to go out the door and that's it. And it kind of is a way of circumventing all of the noise and, um, you know, challenging self-talk that's happening. I love that. I love that so much. It's true. It's like once you get that ball rolling, then you you feel good. But sometimes it's like, just just do it. Just do it without even thinking and and like that I think that's what stops us right is the scramble in our minds so just doing the action gets us away from whatever's pulling us back from it yeah totally and I mean don't hurt yourself right like sure. if it's a day where you didn't sleep sleep and you feel miserable like maybe that's not the day for your run but but I think a lot of times we just get tripped up with like okay even if you're not going to finish the whole document you can open the doc and you can type five words, right? And like, right. then see what happens once you kind of get into a flow. If you can get into a flow, it might be a really great day for writing or it might not be, it might be medium, but give yourself a chance by not waiting until you're motivated before you start. Hmm. How about when people are not feeling confident enough to really start something? Like, what are your thoughts around that? Well, uh, I was talking to a friend who um, has been a professional musician and she's a really interesting and accomplished person. And when she was auditioning for orchestra seats, uh, playing the oboe, she had this belief in her mind that she couldn't win a professional seat because she had never done it before. Mm. And I think we feel that way about a lot of things. Yeah. I don't think I can do this because I've never done it. <laughs> and yeah. Um, that's a really challenging belief, even when you identify it. So I think as much as possible, we need to just remind ourselves, well, there's, there's a first time for everything. And how about a willingness to make a mistake? It's just so funny how, you know, small kids will walk or try to say words that they don't know, or, you know, dance or paint, but then we become conditioned. I can only do this if I'm good at it. But really, what if on purpose? We try to do something like cook a new dish or um, learn a new instrument or a few words of a new language that like we know we're not going to be good at. So to try to get a little bit more comfortable with that feeling of failure and trying something new so that the confidence isn't built around, oh, I'm only confident about things I already know I could do. The confidence is about, oh, I don't mind trying and failing. That's something that's okay. I'm a person who can try and fail and that dish didn't work out. I'm going to try it differently next time. I used um, I used a polenta roll, you know, instead of the polenta that's uh, more like rice. It totally didn't work. And so that's just how things are sometimes. I love that. It. I think the term that people use a lot is like the beginner's mindset, right? right. The yeah. idea of like just being a beginner and feeling okay about it and knowing like, hey, I'm not going to be great at it, but that's all right. And I'm going to learn as I go, which I think is really, it's hard for a lot of people, especially as we get yeah. older. It's this idea of like, oh, I, it, everything's too scary. I just want to do what's comfortable. Right. Right. It turns out it's great for your brain mm. to learn a bit of a new language or a new sport or a new instrument. So if you think about it as brain care, maybe that can help us get over that fear. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so funny, because it makes me think of this idea where like, I feel like I was told that, you know, I can only really learn things when I'm young. And as I get older, I'm just going to not be able to learn things as well. And so I feel like as I got older, I was like, oh, well, I, I'm not going to be able to learn anything. And I started just like, breaking that down and countering that belief. And it's been amazing. But it's funny how we have this idea in our minds, like, oh, like when you're young, you try things, you do things like you, you can fail and it's fine. But when you're older, you're like, oh, no, everything's scary. And I need to only do what I'm successful at already. It's true that these different mindsets are so sneaky. They're so pernicious. They kind of have taken root 
without, right. We believe things that people told us or that was our experience. Like I just didn't think exercise or physical activity was something that my body could do. So it's really weird as an adult being like, oh, I can try this new exercise. Okay. I'm comfortable with this one, but not that one. I can't try this other new thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Super interesting. Oh, the other thing I wanted to, I want to touch upon this, the, the idea of our emotions and because it was one of the, the like later chapters, you talk about emotions and, and how we tend to kind of label things as like good emotions and bad emotions. And we want to avoid the bad ones and only have like the good times and feel happy and joyful. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure, Jessica. Well, I like talking about emotions. Okay, so. good. <laughs> Well, I think that people might pick up a book like this, like the self-talk workout, because people want to have a good experience and feel happy and good about themselves. And that's great. I also just think as humans, for most of us, it's, it doesn't, it's very unlikely that it's possible to feel happy all the time, constantly. Life is just challenging and we're humans and we're not robots. And actually this full spectrum of emotions, like anger and pain and sorrow and frustration. This is part of the deal. So that's what we've got. And given that it is part of the deal, how can we have those experiences in ways where we're not causing ourselves more pain? And that's where the self-talk comes in. So where you're not saying, oh, I'm a terrible person for feeling frustrated or just in general, I shouldn't feel this way, right? I think that's a common one. (laughs) I shouldn't feel like this. When patients come for therapy, sometimes they're like, oh, I just don't want anxiety. Just, you know, take the anxiety away. I need to get rid of it. Mm. And of course, we can reduce difficult emotions with different techniques in psychotherapy or shift things, but I don't think we can entirely remove any challenging emotion. And so then I do think, though, that there are more peaceful and loving ways to be with those hard emotions that make them and that being with them in a different way makes them more bearable. So I think about allowing all feelings to be there because constricting or saying, um, oh, I'm not good in emotions or uh, I can never be angry or I can never cry. Whatever the constriction is, a lot of us feel some type of um, judgment around having different emotions. There's also sort of the other extreme, I think, where, well, I'll just say maybe that much like people think of often self-criticism as being a trait, something that's unchangeable, I think a lot of times people think that their emotional style is unchangeable. Mm. So like if I don't pay attention to my emotions or I compartmentalize or I ruminate or I get lost in the emotion, that seems like just how it is. So I really want to share this message that people really can change their emotional style. And the one theme that kind of comes up for me in thinking about an emotional style is, well, how are you relating and talking to yourself about this emotion? Is it in a kind way or are you trying to censor yourself or think that you should be different? Because a lot of times allowing emotion to be there, and what does that even mean? Okay, I'm going to allow it to be there. What is What's the action? I think an action could be saying to myself, getting curious about it. Where do I feel this anger in my body right now? Is it in my chest? Does it feel hot? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel tight? And really trying to tune in. I think that method of where do I feel it in my body is an invitation to say, hey, you know what? This actually is happening. And I'm a human person who's having an emotion. I'm not terrible. This is just what's happening. Let's really feel it for a minute. And then maybe give yourself a little bit of care. Like, oh, I'm sorry you have that tightness in your chest. That's uncomfortable. How can I help? Can I sit here for a minute? Can I breathe? Can I say something comforting? So that you actually get the experience of taking care of yourself in that really hard moment. And as you build that muscle, I mean, that's huge. If you can take care of yourself in a painful moment, I mean, we have painful moments, unfortunately. So it's a really nice skill to develop. And some people find that it can also help them be more present for other people 
in painful moments. Thank you. Thank you so much for that answer. I I appreciate that because it reminds me of I used to have this thing where I was um and it's so funny. I actually did like a like a drawing exercise around anger. And it like helped me really attune to how was I approaching anger? And it was that I was trying to push it away. You know, I was like, this is bad. I don't want to feel it. And therefore, I'll try and push it away. And and I had this realization that like that wasn't a helpful way of, you know, relating to it. Right. And when I changed that equation, it changed how I felt about being angry, you know, like where I was I was like, it's OK that I'm angry. It's not bad you know it's it's saying that I'm recognizing like a feeling that I'm having towards something that's happening in my life you know and and I I love what you were saying there around like having that curiosity and then bringing it back into like how am I physically feeling and coming into your body I think that's really beautiful and yeah it's it's great thanks for sharing that Jessica that's so powerful I do find that that self-criticism about difficult emotions typically makes them worse and the evidence is strong to back that up and being kind about to yourself when you're having difficult emotions usually makes them better, even though it can feel really hard to do. And that's why, you know, go slowly. You can be kind to yourself about having a headache before you're, you know, feel really up to being kind to yourself for, um, you know, feeling frustrated about something that you think is no big deal and you shouldn't feel frustrated about. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like it almost feels counterintuitive where it's like normally when you're when you're having these big emotions, like you can just spiral into them and you go, but it's like you're actually getting closer to it and almost like hugging the emotion is kind of what I'm visualizing and saying like, how do I kind of like care for that part of me that's feeling the sadness or anger or whatever that emotion might be, right? Yeah, one teacher talked about um, like you're diving down deeper into the water instead of like getting caught up in all the surface waves and turmoil. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. So I feel like we need to start wrapping up, although I could talk to you forever, I feel like. <laughs> Likewise, Jessica. <laughs> so is there anything else that you want to mention that we haven't covered off on yet? Well, I do want to mention that um, some people are in crisis with self-criticism. It can be very strongly connected to depression and self-harm. So I always want people who are in that type of situation to reach out for support, even though it can feel really hard. There are services 24-7. There's a hotline of 988 for voice. And there's also one for text now that's 741-741. It can feel really lonely and scary sometimes if self-criticism is so powerful that it's really constant and severe. So please do reach out if that's the situation. And then for other folks who don't feel in crisis, but it's just kind of difficult, I just want to say you're not alone. And this stuff is challenging, but it's not impossible. The evidence is really strong that people can change how they relate to themselves with specific tools and practices. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, I would say, I would add to that and say that it's an ever evolving process, right? It's not like one day all your self-talk is beautiful, right? It's a constant coming totally. back and, <laughs> yeah. and developing it over time. For sure. Okay, so let's get into our final questions. So these are like kind of try and do like a sentence or two kind of answer, but, you know, sometimes we'll end up talking a little more. <laughs> all right, so the no first problem. question is, how would you describe your current relationship to yourself? My current relationship to myself, ship with myself is evolving and I am pouring more self-compassion onto the foundation of um, self-love, but also noticing all of the, the traps that are still around that I can fall into sometimes. Amazing. All right, next question is, What is something that you're currently working on with yourself? I'm currently working on reasonable goals that are pretty specific. So for instance, the home organization 
kind of enterprise, I'm trying to think, okay, of just this part of just this room today to make the it more of a chunk and less of a huge project to tackle. Oh, I love it. I'm definitely applying that to my life more. <laughs> okay, so what do you consider most valuable to you right now? That's such a fascinating question. I think that what's most valuable to me is encouragement in the moment, as many moments as possible. And that can be encouraging uh, talk to myself in my own mind, but also to uh, my family and friends to be with them in an encouraging way that actually you don't need to accomplish anything right now in this moment, just this moment, the presence is enough. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. All right. What is the best lesson that you've learned recently? The best lesson that I've learned recently is to pay attention to my body. And that one has been a little bit harder because um, I've had some back pain, Mm -hmm. which is annoying, but also it's forced me to exercise a little bit more and get stronger. So I've noticed that I can't really put my body on the back burner anymore. And I'm grateful for that because Mm -hmm being in my body a little bit more and giving it a little more attention has um, reinforced some of my own mindfulness and self-compassion. And um, it feels good to feel physically stronger as well. Amazing. All right. What is the number one skill that you believe that everyone should work on? The number one skill that I believe everyone should work on I think that it is finding a mind-body home. So can there be a place within you that's a sanctuary that no matter what's going on, you can go back there? And maybe there's a sentence like inhale my friend, exhale my friend, or back to the breath, or your own mantra, or something from your religion or spirituality that helps bring you to that home place because there's so much happening. It's easy to be everywhere, but it's nice to have some place to go home. Oh, what a beautiful answer. I love that so much. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. I Seriously, I could talk to you all day, but we'll have to just talk thank again. <laughs> That's all. That sounds great. And um, Jessica, thank you so much for um, talking with me today. I really enjoyed speaking with you and learning a little bit more about your thoughts and perspectives. Oh. Hope to learn more. Thank you. So can you tell, share with everyone where they could find you if they want to learn more and where they can find your book? Well, my book is called The Self-Talk Workout. It's published by Shambhala. You can find it through them, but it's also on Amazon. And you can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website, www.rachelturo.com. Amazing. Well, thank you again, Rachel. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Likewise, Jessica, all the best. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to A Way of Thinking. If you loved this episode, please hit the follow button and share this episode with your friends. I hope some of the beautiful wisdom shared today resonates with you and perhaps creates some change in your way of thinking. If you're looking for support in your journey, click on the link to my website to book a free self-love discovery session. Remember that I believe in you and I am so excited for the day that you believe in you too. Let's continue learning and growing together. Thank you.